Okay, I don't know. I, I didn't bring any extra Jesus Christ, uh, the apple tree sheets, but hopefully you have them from last time. If not, you don't really need them, but you just need to listen. So Jesus Christ is the apple tree because um, uh, Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 3, I think. The, belo- uh, the lover is uh, he's an apple tree. And of course, um, a little bit later in the Song of Songs, the beloved, the 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 lady ha- has breath like apples because um, she's been on on him. So, um, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. And I learned it doesn't go on the radio if I. So I gotta use my microphone. I'm sure it's gonna buffer. Okay, Jesus Christ the Apple Tree on Wednesday with uh, kindergarten through second graders. For Pastor Chats, I, uh, we've been uh, going through, um, God uses everything to worship Him. And uh, so we've been going through the stuff of the nave, water, rocks, stone. And on Wednesday, we, we did wood. So one of the things I have the kids do is just walk through the nave, the, the sanctuary, the church, and find wood. Of course, it was really easy. That, you know, they, the pews and 
chairs and ceilings. And of course, they found the crucifix was made out of wood. So, um, we, where does wood come from? Trees. Great. And so there are three trees in the Bible that are very important. Verse 1, we'll go in chronological or biblical order. Well, tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And then uh, the second one is at the very end of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 22, there is a tree in heaven that is over the river of life. And then, of course, I didn't have to finish the sentence because the kids, well, they got the third one right away. I didn't even say it. Actually, some of them got it like before that. I was like, I, I, I did work on this. So I'm going to keep going with my lesson. Thank you. It's the cross. And uh, they didn't know Galatians 3.13 or Deuteronomy, whatever it is. Uh, Cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. But um, Jesus is on wood. He's on a tree. So... Jesus Christ, the apple tree, sounds peculiar for a lot of us because, well, we like to put our worship life in compartments and not have it be touching all of our lives. So, it sounds kind of odd, an apple tree. Well, first of all, is there apples growing in the Mediterranean? Is there apples? I don't even know if there is. Uh, That song that we just listened to was from England. So, of course, the fruit trees that are most, you know, predominant is an apple tree. So, that's why they had Jesus Christ, the apple tree. Someone said it earlier. They said fig trees. Well, yeah, that, that would probably be the most, the way we define fruits and things like that. Okay, but anywho. So, I wanna, I wanna, I'm just going to keep starting the lesson with Jesus Christ, the apple tree, because as we spend more time in the Song of Songs, we realize that, this is going to be touching upon not just this poem in the middle of the Bible, but it's touching Genesis, it's touching Revelation, and it's giving us a picture or image of the passion of Christ on the cross. Which I think we kind of, that's how we ended last week. Speaking of last week, or not last week, two weeks ago. I have no idea what Pastor Buke said last week, because we don't talk, you know. <laughs> We did do a lot of talking, but I, I didn't ask him what he... I, all I know is he, he said, uh, start up at verse 9. So, um, so I'm just going to go on what I said two weeks ago. Song of Songs, soundtrack of scripture. Like those uh, video clips last time where I showed different soundtracks to a very kind of moving scene from the Lord of the Rings as a chase, and then, you know, all of a sudden it's like... You know, you put the wrong soundtrack in, it makes it look goofy. Just like Holy Scripture, if you interpret it in such a way that it's uh, very cold and facts and information-oriented, it's not going to ring true to the actual richness of, of Scripture. So, you know, the Song of Songs is the soundtrack of Scripture because it is about a lover who loves his beloved with a passion that's beyond all passions. And to help us kind of understand that, I kind of uh, spoke about eros and agape. Eros, where the word erotic comes from, has been co-opted and stolen from people. And now we mostly mainly define that with a sinful understanding. But what the Song of Songs does, it helps us redeem that word, eros, and understand that eros and agape... Uh, Agape as it fully is understood is never without eros, and eros as it's fully understood is never without agape. Agape, um, eros being desire and, and and just kind of passionate. And I showed you a non-sexual example of eros with the double rainbow man, the double rainbow guy. 
don't know if you guys remember that, but you should, if you, ha- you didn't see it, I mean, if you weren't here last time or you haven't heard of this guy, I had never heard of it until, well, at, it, you know, he was on the Today Show. So, you might have saw it a few years ago when it made the uh, morning news rounds. Uh, the double rainbow guy. He loves rainbows. I mean, he loves rainbows. He's passionate about rainbows. Um, so that, you know, that's a good example. Uh, of course, though, I, uh, relating it back to the crucifix, or crucifixion, the, the Mel Gibson movie, right? The passion of the Christ. The word passion is, um, help us understand, and that's probably the most visible example of how agape and eros are always connected and fulfilled. So, um, yeah, so the church has an incredible, joyful song to sing. It's the song of the bride rejoicing in total surrender to the love of her bridegroom. St. Augustine said, singing is a lover's thing. That's why, you know, you can always tell someone had a great date the previous night. They're a little lighter in their step, right? Whistling a tune. But it doesn't have to be, you know, dating relationship. It can be any wonderful, great thing that's happened to you. You feel like singing. And that's what happens on Easter. I mean, I, Easter, it feels good to sing on Easter, doesn't it? Come on, it's like, it's great. Christmas too. You know, but I always, I always uh, stress Easter because um, well, I always think their hymns are better, but we don't sing them enough. I mean, we, you know, Christmas, you get all of Advent, right, to sing? I mean, not at church, but... You know, you go to the store, you hear music, you know, Silent Night. You know, but when Easter Sunday's over, you don't, you don't hear a lot of Easter hymns. I mean, you know, out in the world. So, maybe there should be. Maybe, I don't know, I'm thinking off the top of my head here. Maybe, maybe that's something. I figure you could make a Muzak CD of... Easter hymns and put it in elevators across the United States. See, that would work. That's exactly right. Church debt gone. Okay. Um, Anyway, okay, so the church's love song, in fact, is the new tongue that comes from the Holy Spirit. In this heavenly song, the church experiences an inebriation. Inebriation. I can't say that word right now. Inebriate. Surpassing all the possibilities of mere rationality. Now, that's another thing is um, that that, I've been thinking about this a lot for Pastor Chess, especially the grades K through 2, kindergarten, first and second grade, because we start our little teaching with the soul of Christ prayer, anime Christe prayer. It's in the back of your Pew Edition Bibles, if you have any on the the table. and the blood of Christ inebriates. Inebri- I can't, why can't I say it? Inebriates. Yes, you ask Christ for his blood to inebriate me. Um, that word was too big, so we use the word refresh. Refresh me. Um, but um, that's a, uh, another image that you find in the Song of Songs. Uh, going into the wines. Well, it says chamber, I think, in verse 4. The king has brought me into his chambers. Um, that, uh, depending on the, the translation, it could also be wine cellar. Wine plays another part in the Song of Songs anyways. Okay, I, I want to get through this quote here. In other words, we cannot enter the joy. There's that word again. The inebriation of the church's love song, merely with our minds, merely with an intellectual, rational grasp of theological ideas, however correct those ideas might be. Singing comes from a different place within the human being, from the depths of the heart. So, um, so today, so that's the Song of Songs. It's, it's not as if you, you shut your mind off and you only deal with your heart, but it's, it's your head and your heart together bringing forth um, 
your, your full self in relationship to God. So today we're going to talk about, yeah, how God is fascinated with you. Um, maybe we should just, well, I'm going to read Song of Songs 1, 9 through 17. By the way, those who went to chapel, did you ever think you were going to hear this? And uh, we should we should find you know, yeah, we should we should we should read this more often in church. Although you technically we're not supposed to because it's we're not all old enough to handle it or mature enough, I should say. Maybe age has nothing to do with it. But okay, <laughs> which reminds me a story about my youngest daughter. I'll. I'll uh, Tell you in a second. Okay, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Doesn't that just get your heart racing? I, you know, I don't even know what this means. Interesting. I have not seen Ben Hur. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. And then there's a chorus. We will make you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, couch is uh, technically not a literal translation, surrounding place. Of course, I don't even know what that means. Couch Couch I can understand. Uh, my nard gave forth its, oh, I have nard. I pass that around. Don't let me forget. My nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engendi. Pastor Beeks, how do I say that word? Engendi. Uh, you know, well, Holly already knows. I have problems pronouncing. Especially the, uh, Descendant of do- or the first dogs. What are they called? Where do dogs come from? Descended from? Yes, yeah, I can't say that word. I say woofs. My kids always correct me. All right, okay, so verse 15. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And then she says, behold, you are beautiful. My beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. Okay. Um, I love this. It's great stuff. Beautiful. Uh, There's too much in this this Bible passage to really deal with. So, some things we're not going to deal with now, but maybe later, is we're going to start at the end. So, the rafters are cedar and pine, and you're like, are they talking about a house? Well, yes, but also um, it's a temple reference. Um, so their relationship, their lovemaking happens in this place. And that might sound weird to our ears. But the temple is where God joins his people. The thing is, too, though, is that within the temple, does anyone know, like, what were the images on the walls of the temple? Who said that? Yeah, pomegranates, trees, and which would re- should remind us of the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve we're naked and without shame. So she makes this reference to a building, and we kind of read it, oh, hey, that's ancient Near East architecture, and it's just a house. Well, it's more than that. Okay. Yeah, what, what does it say? Verdant. Yeah, it's ready. Fruitful, green also, it gives connotation of, of growth and life. Yes. But um, there's a variety of understandings. Okay, then, um, oh, the fragrances and the nard. It, there's a more, 
more special spot in the middle. Actually, in the very middle of Song of Songs is uh, the word nard. Nard, nard. Nard, comma, nard. So that's... So I, uh, I bought some really cheap nard. So it's olive oil that's infused with a little bit of nard. Um, does anyone know where nard actually, like, what nard comes from? Like, nobody does, right? I mean, I, I never heard of it until, I, like, three months ago. I mean, I've heard of nard, but I, mean, I didn't know exactly. So there's a little picture of it here. Um, it, comes from, uh, it comes from, like, the Himalayas. It's really expensive. But it's very powerful. Uh, I mean, just a little bit of nard goes a long way. So we're going to talk about nard and fragrances a little bit later. But um, Matthew 26, Jesus is anointed with nard. I'm sorry. He's anointed on his head with a very fragrant oil. And John chapter 12 Jesus is anointed with a nard. It's the same story. Six days before his crucifixion. I was in a place... Did I tell you this? I don't know if I told you this already. Um, so I was at a uh, pastor's... Or a continuing education course on Song Songs. And uh, the speaker put out nard on Sunday night. We left Friday. I could still smell it on Friday. And he put, he put about... you know he. He probably put a tablespoon, maybe, tops, out in a bowl. So, does anyone know how much Jesus was anointed with? Yeah, it was a, it was a lot. <laughs> um, so, it's a good assumption that Jesus smelled like nard when he was crucified. Of course, that's what they says, preparing my body for burial. Well, nard in this instance is not used for burial, but for getting ready for union, consummation. So we're so Jesus, Saint Augustine. I had that. I think I had that quote. I see. I can't remember if I had that quote last week in my. But Saint Augustine calls the cross the uh, the bride, the the bed of of uh, nuptial bed where Christ gives himself to his bride. Um, does anyone know what the Latin is for it is finished? When Jesus cries out, it is finished. It is consummated. So, Jesus smells like nard when he's crucified and consummates his marriage to his church. When he becomes one. That's in John. So what, is John, what does he do to Mary? Behold, your son. So Jesus joins himself to, to the church, representative of Mary, and births a newborn, John. So, um, pretty crazy stuff, but we'll talk about that later. So anyways, if you want to take a little nard, smell it, pass it around. It's it's infused with olive oil, so there you go. It's not as powerful as I want, but um, you know, I wasn't going to spend a lot of money. So, not that you're not worth it. So I was really unsure whether if I got back, you know, if I spent seventy bucks and I got back the same thing, I'd be like, oh, Jim, like how am I supposed to like? What am I going to do? If anyone knows where to get real nard, where I can actually physically see it, let me know. So I will spend $80 and get it. But I have no idea where to get that. What's that? Spike nard. Yeah, same difference. Do you know where to get spike? Well, spike nard and nard, same difference. Like real spike nard. It's green. Yeah, see, this is where... It's, it's really expensive. Like, it's... Yep, it comes from a plant. Yeah. A little picture of it's right there. It's on the bottle, too. All right, last but not least, St. Teresa of Avalon. Tomorrow's her saint day. 
stuff. Wait. Sunday is, sorry. Don't worry, we're not celebrating it at St. John. Could, though. Maybe. Depends on when you count the Reformation. Okay. Um, anyways, this is a uh, hand drawing. Uh, I mean, it's a photo of a hand drawing of the statue we saw last time. So this is another image of Eros infused with agape, saturated, filled up with agape. So it's a closer headshot, which we'll talk... Oh, so that has to do with um, the exchange of... Um, well, it's 12 through 19, basically. Okay. Anyhow. I want you to see that picture because we'll talk more about it. Okay, let's, uh, let's get to this. All right, all right, so I just read it. Oh, so God is fascinated with you. That, hopefully this fascination should, should make us think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, I can't remember if I brought that up or we had time to bring that up last time. So Adam is put to sleep and his rib is taken out and God creates a woman. Now rib, of course is the, the place closest to his heart. And uh, the word for, you know, for rib is, is kind of a, just a peculiar word. So really, it's... Um, my kids and I, we talked about this the other night. Holly was gone. It's a good thing I read Song of Songs to talk to my kids about this because this conversation got, got intimate. But uh, Penelope asked about Adam and Eve and how Eve created, got created from a rib. It's, it's gross, you know. Did God, like, open up Adam's skin and take out a rib? And then how, how did that all happen? So um, she asked, I said, well, where's your rib? It's right here. And now Audrey's sitting next to me. No. Yeah. Isaac was with us. It was Daphne, Audrey, and Penelope. And um, you know, she's like, I don't know. It's like by your skin. And then Audrey's like, well, it's by your heart. I'm like, that's right. All right, so what does it protect? Your heart. Okay. So my kids got, we made easy jumps from rib to heart and how when Adam, when Eve was created, there was a connection between hearts that was fulfilled when Eve was brought together back to Adam. So, um, so Genesis chapter 2, when Eve is brought back to Adam, he has this great exclamation. And he's completely fascinated by Eve. He's enraptured. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then we have the commentary, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and behold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So these words of Adam, it's, it, it, they express ad wonder and admiration. They express fascination. Adam says, look, this we, we talked about when we talked about the dignity of, wo- of women. Adam says, look, a body that expresses the person. A beauty, completes, a, a beauty that completes me by revealing to me my beauty. That's Christopher West's quote. That is a great way of understanding what happens in the Garden of Eden. Is that Adam sees Eve's body and sees her whole person. And he is completely fascinated by this person. But not fascinated in a lustful way, but in a loving way. Obviously, because this is before the fall into sin. Um, but when he looks at her, remember, she is not separated from him, but was made from him. So she now, together, they are the fullness of each other. They are the image of God together. So this is a, a very powerful image. But of course, this love is revealed through the body. 
Love is precisely understood in giving oneself wholly to the other and receiving the other wholly. Nothing's held back, including your body. Love is a gift. Makes you a gift because you are a gift. I mean, this is this is all. The only way this works is if we understand gift. All right. But Adam's attraction to Eve's body is an attraction toward her person, since it's based. I already said that. In base love, which is a special experience of the beautiful. Although it's focused on what is visible, this is something that's very hard for us to understand. Is that when Adam sees Eve, he sees all of her. He doesn't see just her body parts, her skin. He sees. Into her. Into me see, I think I, I mentioned one time. Okay. Um, but, it, okay, so this, when he sees into her, this, it's beautiful, and it breaks forth in mutual pleasure. They love seeing each other. Okay, so this is Adam and Eve. So Song of Solomon, as it echoes a, a real loving relationship, is going to have this fascination between the lover and the beloved, between the man and the woman. They love seeing each other. Well, okay, they see each other, which means you're going to have very descriptive ways of seeing each other. That's why breasts are mentioned. This is why you know necks are mentioned and legs and just the whole body. We get a little bit of that in Chapter 1. We'll get more of it later. So that's why I'm just kind of getting into it right now. Um, but of course, though, for us now, the struggle is, is looking with lust or seeing with love. And I, I should have put this, is also being seen by love. It shows my... Uh, it, show, it shows... It revealed about myself... I was thinking about myself seen when I should have been thinking about me being seen. Now that I think about it. Because um, how many of us have a problem being seen with love? Every hand should be raised, by the way. Because no one's comfortable being loved just, just because. Everybody wants to know why I'm loved. Why do you love me? Because if you have a reason, oof, that, I did it. Makes me feel good about myself. I did something. But that's grace, right? Grace is actually being love because of love. But we're very uncomfortable with grace. So the fact that I didn't, see, didn't write being seen with love is a good indication of my problem also. All right, so before sin entered the world, Eros was filled with agape. To, to, to use the image of the Song of Songs, man and woman were inebriated by God's wine. Wine's mentioned a lot in the Song of Songs. And it's not just to have a good time. Wine is a sign of God's peace and prosperity, God's richness, God's final culmination of heaven on earth. Um, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 25, where God will wipe away all tears, God will make a feast on this mountain, a feast of uh, uh, well-aged wine. And you can drink as much as you want. All right, so... Uh, we will get to this. I thought I was going to get to this today, but I changed my mind. So Jesus is the bridegroom. Can you think of a story of a wedding that needs wine? Is there, was there one in the Bible? Okay. The wedding of Cana. What's interesting about that story, it's a wedding, but there's no mention of the bride and the groom. Who's mentioned the most in the wedding of Cana? Jesus. Jesus is the bridegroom. I, uh, I mean, he, John is showing how Jesus is the bride, the, the final bridegroom, the one that's uh, foretold in the Old Testament. He's not the bridegroom at that wedding per se. He's the one who's uh, more important than the bridegroom. That's why he's the, 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 the wedding itself, the bridegroom's not really mentioned because it's really about the true bridegroom. And they run out of wine. 
So a sign of the bridegroom coming is lots and lots of wine. So Jesus comes and he's the bridegroom that brings the final marriage feast. Um, and so the one, so yeah, so John chapter two, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is a bridegroom. In John chapter three, John the Baptist calls Jesus a bridegroom. Um, yeah, um, and he's the he's the best man. John's the Baptist, best man. Uh, not to get too much on a tangent. Okay. All right. So um, yes. So inebriated with God's wine means receiving the fullness of God's. Gifts. Goes back to that prayer that I mentioned, the soul of Christ prayer. We translate it as refresh, but the the actual there's too many big words in the prayer that I can only tackle a few. So I didn't want to tackle inebriate. But I have a problem saying it too. So my kids the kids make fun of me already. So why well, give them a reason to? All right, so, so this is really important for us, though, is that um, lust runs out of wine, love creates more wine. And we get that in beauty, which I think should be coming up here. Oh, yeah, so man takes, takes the woman to his wine cellar for her to drink up. But... Um, so, yeah, so love creates more wine, more peace, more prosperity, and, um, and beauty. So the fascination with each other's bodies that we, we begin to see at the end of chapter 1 in Song of Songs um, is a sign of actual holiness. I, want to, I really want to make that, that connection between bodies and holiness. Christian holiness is always incarnational holiness or embody, chili con carne, right? Chili with meat. Christian holiness is always meaty. It starts in the Old Testament. Holiness is always bodily. Well, first of all, what is holiness? What is holiness? Anybody want to take a stab at what holiness means? There's a variety of explanations. Set apart, pure. pure. Holly, is that what you were going to say? Without stain, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the simple one, yeah, so uh, that's, those are all right. Yep, that's all part of what holiness means. Um, holiness is, is coming into the right relationship with God. So in the Old Testament, you could be um, unholy, holy. But in addition to that, you could be clean and unclean. All right, so um, you have to be cleaned in order to become holy. But of course, how how could um, one receive? Ho- how did uh, and re- holiness is always received? So that's another thing too. You have to be comfortable being loved. You also have to comfort- be comfortable by being holied. You don't create holiness. So in the Old Testament, how did one become holy? Think bodies, sacrifices. Sacrifices were holy because they touched the altar. That's the most holy. That, the altar made things holy. Of course, if it was clean. If it was unclean, it was bad news. Burn up. Okay, so you had clean and unclean animals. You couldn't just put any animal on the altar. Um, clean animal. It's on the altar. So it's fire. It's cooked. Fat is burned up. But what happened to the meat? Some went to the priests. They ate the meat. And then, depending on which sacrifice, the family ate it. Who brought it? How did the family become holy? Through the body of the lamb. The flesh of the lamb. Holiness has always had a body attached to it. So the fascination with each other's bodies is a sign of holiness because the only way they can talk this way without turning the person into an object is by being, having holy, being holied, being loved by God. That's usually how we talk about it. 
but being holied. So in the New Testament, though, now the New Testament, Jesus, okay, so New Testament's body of Jesus, right? Jesus comes, okay. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so holiness is now becoming in relationship to God, to Christ. And in the church, sacraments are, are what makes you holy, mainly baptism and the Lord's Supper which are always attached to a body. We have an incarnate spirituality as Christians. So that's why we can be fascinated with bodies. We see this precisely in the crucifixion, though. Jesus is naked and without shame on the cross. I know we have a cloth over him in our church. Maybe we shouldn't. I don't know. But Jesus didn't really have a cloth over him. He was naked. But of course, what are, as Christians, where do we look to? We look towards the cross. A cross without a body is not really biblical. And a cross with, with a veiled body is not really biblical either. It's a concession to our weakness. But we look to the naked body of Christ on the cross for our life. Isn't that crazy? You ever think about that? That's holiness. Christ is most holy as he's naked on the cross. Now, of course, though, we're also fascinated with Christ's body. Where else? I have to be comfortable with the word fascinated, by the way. Fascinated kind of gets a bad rap, right? Because it kind of shows like an uh, inability to detach oneself from it could turn into an unhealthy uh, obsession. Fatuations, you know. I become so fascinated with something that it, you know, I turn into a stalker or something. I don't know. That's not what I'm talking about. Fascinated meaning enraptured. Love. I love it. I love it so much. Not a way that keeps me from life, but actually gives me life. So, how, you know, so we're fascinated with Christ's body now in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper, which then, of course, means husband and wives can be fascinated with each other's bodies and friendships. John fifteen, the Jungle Book, right? Brigida says of Baloo, "No greater love." than one who has given up his, his life for his friends. Gave up his body. Okay, so, um, so, so fascinated with bodies. We're fascinated with bodies because the beauty of the human person is the pinnacle of all created beauty in the visible world. And, and it's actually female bodies. Female bodies first, male second. Not an absolute sequence, but a logical sequence. Why is the female body the most beautiful thing in all creation? Ali. That's right. Uh, so visible world, creature, is that woman is, that, that's who we are before God. Right? We're receivers. So the church is the bride. So even if you're a man inside the church, there's femininity in your identity. Okay. Um, all right, great. So this is, this is something that's... Uh, so now is we... Okay, well, then that makes sense that we'll, we'll talk about breasts and legs and hair and um, cheeks... And, uh, well, there's just a lot, of, a lot of things here. A lot of euphemisms, too. Okay? So we should be like, whoa, this is pretty racy. Well, no, it's actually not racy. It's just, it's just what God created us to be. Fascinated with each other. Because we are beautiful. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, I think is, is how we often say it. Each one of us is beautiful. 
That's what it says right in the Bible. Verse 15. You are beautiful, my love. Just in case you didn't get it the first time, got it the second time. You are beautiful. Now, what's interesting is the, the, the lover says, your eyes are like doves. That's not only a sign of their beauty, but also the character of to which you see. You, so the early church would often see your eyes being formed by what? What is dove in the New Testament? The Holy Spirit. So women have a very wonderful thing about them. Is that they see with the Holy Spirit. They see, they see spiritually. Um, if through the Song of Songs, you'll see that man, the man has a tendency to really focus on the physical body of the woman. And the woman has a tendency to see with the eyes of doves. But together, they see all of reality. So it's, uh, it's, 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 I love it. I think it's great. Okay. So, yeah, so we're yearning for perfect, perfect beauty. So how do, how do we, okay, so I had to throw in uh, the Heidelberg Disputation, which we, I've quoted 8 million times, I'm sure, to you all, but I want to say it again. Thesis 28 the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. So divine love creates, man finds. So uh, there's an explanation to this thesis that I quote here. And um, uh, I didn't quote the whole thing. I probably quoted too much. Anyways, uh, thus it's also demonstrated that Aristotle's philosophy is contrary to theology. That means kind of man's philosophy, the pinnacle of man's philosophy. Since in all things it seeks those which are its own and receives rather than gives something good. The first part is clear because the love of God which lives in man loves sinners, evil persons, fools, and weaklings <laughs> in order to make them righteous, good, wise, and strong. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Therefore, sinners are and this is a, a, a quote I didn't look up any Latin or German to see, but that's the English translation, are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. So perfect beauty is a loved beauty. The God, Christ, husband, through his own sacrificial love, is called in some way to uncover, discover, foster, and create his bride's beauty. So God does that for Israel. Um, another little tangent here. Moses is the best man. There's a, we'll, we'll take a look at that. But um, God marries Israel. Does anyone know where God marries Israel? We, we take a guess in the Old Testament. Like in an event. Not, not like a Hosea or, you know. That's right. Mount Sinai is a wedding. And the Torah is the marriage covenant. And Moses is the best man. Uh, this is how like, uh, the rabbis interpreted the, the, the uh, Mount Sinai. It's really, that's really cool. Because, of course, Israel was enslaved by Egypt. And God comes and rescues Israel, his chosen one. And what does he do? He brings her through the water, washes her, cleanses her, makes her right, feeds her, blesses her, and then comes down and in Exodus 24 becomes one with her through the blood of the covenant. Now, things don't last too long, but neither did they in Eden. Okay, but you have, this, uh, you have this marriage image. All right. Then Christ, of course, we already talked about that, uh, you know, loves his wife in, uh, on the cross and marries the bride uh, uh, through the cross, the death and resurrection. And then, well, of course, husbands, that's from Ephesians. Oh, I wrote it down. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Okay. Which, of course, for all earthly people, earthly husbands, it's a uh, tall order right there. Husbands, 
I don't know. If, I don't know. If I'm a, yeah. It's a challenge, but it's also a challenge to everybody, just in general, whether you're a husband or a wife. Uh, love creates beauty. So we love and we create. So, um, okay. Desiring the other person, not what the person offers. This is another peculiar thing about the Song of Songs, is that you don't have a lot of like, oh, this guy is so great because, you know, we live in a big house or, he says sweet nothings to me. He has a lot of beautiful things about him. But as we as you take a look at it closely, it's never a benefit. It's he's she's describing him. And likewise, for him, she's describing her. So this is something important for us as, as we relate, relate it to God and ourselves. When the bridegroom and the bride desire each other as subject, not as object, they desire the whole person, not a benefit. Um, yeah, God just wants you. He wants you. He doesn't want you to say, I love you. He doesn't want your praise. He doesn't need your praise. He wants you. And so that is something that's very, again, that's part of what being loved means. And that's very difficult for us because we always feel like we have to do something. All right. So people are never to be used for anything, even if it's good. I give an example. I love God because he forgives my sins. Okay, that can be understood in the right way, but that can be understood in the wrong way, where you actually love the forgiveness of sins more than God himself. And that is something, like I grew up, I believe in God because I don't want to go to hell. God was kind of just used for a get-out-of-hell ticket. I don't, yeah, I don't think I was really taught to love God. I was taught to love Jesus for what he did for me. And subsequently, I put the benefits of Christ above Christ himself. Yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of, I was kind of sad when I figured that out. A lot of shame involved. Because yeah, I thought I was loving him. But it turned out I was really just loving what he gave me. So that's, I, was, I was so bummed out. I mean, I couldn't tell you how depressed I became when I learned that. But praise be to God, what does God do? He forgives me, he washes me, he brings me through the Red Sea, brings me up on the mountaintop and gives me, makes me inebriated with his wine. And God says, hey, I'm your husband. You're going to be my wife. I'm, uh, as Hosea says, I will be your husband, I no longer will be your Baal. I love that line. It's so good. He's not interested in whatever that happens. He's like interested right now, going forward. Aaron. Uh, I guess I was just thinking a lot about like my own motives and things. And so like, you know what you're saying, I, I totally resonate with that. Like, oh, I, I've, I've always loved God for his benefits. His, but I guess I feel like in everything that I do, my motives are always wrong. So it's like, even if there's anything that I ever do, I always have some bit of, like, wrong motive. That's right. Yep. Sure. And, like, I mean, I know what you just said after that, so, like, I forgive this and come this, but mm-hmm. I guess it's sort of like, well, how, how do you get to a point where you're like, I'm not, or how do you avoid being Yeah, you're asking for a, a good conscience. Am I really loving God for, for who God is, or am I? That's right. Yeah, right. I feel like at every step I'm doing well, so let me let me just let make me clear. Let's make clear. Uh, you can love his benefits also. It's the danger is uh, making God a means to his benefits. Okay, so so Aaron is explained. So uh, those who've been around Saint John long enough, every good work is a, a little louder. I can't hear you. Yeah, forgiven work. So this is, this is, we take, we take great, great uh, um, uh, we have a lot of peace in this because we can't examine our works on their own because our works are as filthy rags. But when God works through us, he works first through the forgiveness of sins and 
by the forgiveness of sins, now we have a good conscience. And because we have been brought into this relationship, we've been cleaned, washed, and, and brought into relationship, now we can live freely. And freely means having a good conscience in everything that we do. Well, what should we do? How should we do it? Well, God tells us we can have a good conscience by loving our neighbor. What does loving our neighbor look like? Well, the Ten Commandments. Now, at the end of the day, of course, we, we will find our, our sins. And that's why uh, Luther's evening prayer is really uh, great. We thank God for the day. We ask for forgiveness. We pray for the holy angels to protect us. I, I mean, that's the perfect prayer at nighttime. Because it gives, it gives God the glory for all the good things. And we can, we can actually rejoice in those good things. And I would really encourage everybody to actually do that. At the end of the day, what is your favorite part of the day? What is your roses? And then what are your thorns? Or your least favorite parts of the day? And those least favorite parts of the day oftentimes are things that you need to have forgiveness. And then at night, and then you pray for God's, God's protection in the night. So, um, so it's a constant rejoicing and asking forgiveness. But when we ask for forgiveness, are we afraid? Do we enter into God's presence afraid? No. Because we have a bridegroom who's fascinated with us, who loves us. And so we, we, we come into his, he invites us into his bridal chamber. And Elena's clapping. That's exactly, it is, it is something worth clapping over. <laughs> so this is, I mean, it's, it's one of those great things that uh, 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 it takes uh, a lot of time. Now, um, this is worked, oh boy, there was a great, line, I can't remember. It's worked out. It, it, it takes practice. Discipline. To, to be loved. Yeah. So it's going to be a constant... Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we just got to keep praying and keep living our life, keep going to the Lord's Supper and rejoicing in our relationship with one another. It's not, it's not something that just we come to the end, we've arrived. Because we arrive always, you know, when, after we die. We arrive to God, the wedding feast in heaven, where God will wipe away every tear. Um, yeah, he has set up the feast. Okay. So, yeah, so, Aaron, you, uh, so back to your point. Yes. We will have, we will feel convicted, but at the same time, God's grace will uh, has the last word. That goes back to my, the Eros discussion two weeks ago, is that with Eros, God has the last word, not our sinfulness. Anyway, the whole point, though, is, is that I want, I want to get to this, this point where we understand that God loves us and we love each other. There's only one you. You are unique, fearfully and wonderfully made. And that is, that's so fascinating. There's no other you. That's worth, that's, that's amazing. And in the Song of Songs, this is what we get. I mean, this is why the bridegroom is just, it says all these things about the, the bride. Because <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, yeah, he loves you because he loves you. It's a circular argument, and that's just that's the best kind of love. Deuteronomy seven seven. That's the Old Testament uh, phrase or uh, section where God talks about why He chose Israel. You weren't the greatest. I chose you because I chose you, because I love you. And then Bernard of Clairvaux has a very nice quote. But I love in order to love. That goes back to the creative nature of love. 
So Jesus, uh, so uh, we love because he first loved us. Okay. So that's why in chapter 1, he starts, in verse, so that's why verse 15 comes before verse 16. <laughs> He's the one who says, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. And then what does she say? No, you're beautiful. No, you're beautiful. No. Okay. All right. You got to go. Um, anyway, I, I'm, maybe I'm uh, uh, making too much of this, but I, I think it's so important for us to really realize that we need to be comfortable with all this body language and because we need to be comfortable with each other as people. Um, all right. There's a nice little quote by Robert Jensen at the end of the handout there, which I, I really enjoy. It just really, well, you can read it yourself because we've got to go. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.